Hey, I love Magic Hat. No, I actually uh, got a Magic Hat condom. You're listening to Blue Yonder with your hosts, Jim Jones. Jim's sitting this one out. Peter Street. I did not have a magic hat on that night. And introducing Aaron Hubbard. It's security through obscurity, man. Well, we had a lot of fun last time talking about RPGs, uh, while Jim was away being cryogenically frozen. And, uh... <laughs> You know, he heard the cast and, uh, you know, kind of went meh. So we're like, fuck him. We're going to do another RPG cast. The Gen Con's coming up. Uh, Peter and I are excited about that. Looking forward to it. And we thought it'd be a good idea to, uh, have a guest on. We've never done this before, but we've got Michael Brewer of the any nominated, uh, dot com, uh, to talk about all things RPG. .com. Sorry. <laughs> all things RPG Sorry. and, uh, you know, from both sides of the table and uh, Gen Con and his experiences uh, with his online endeavors. And uh, we'll get right to that. Welcome to the show, Michael. Well, thanks for having me. No problem. Welcome, Michael. Uh, let's start with the basics. Uh, Peter and I uh, and our RPG show kind of went around and talked about our history with RPG and spent a couple minutes talking about, you know, what brought us into it, our first experiences, and uh, how we got started, how long we've been doing it. So put the same question to you. How did you get started this role-playing game stuff? Well, I would say my introduction to RPGs was probably through the art. Uh, I've always been a fan of Frank Frazetta. Another Vorthos. Um, (laughs) Yes, a fellow Vorthos. For the longest time, my grandfather, I think he still has it, was just not hanging up. He had this Viking painting hanging up in his office of of a Frank Frazetta. It's a quintessential Frank Frazetta piece. And from the time I can remember, I always remember seeing that piece of art and I've always been enamored, I guess, with, with the fantasy genre and the art kind of led me to novels and especially the endless quests, choose your own adventure books. Mm. And actually somebody saw me on the bus while I was in elementary school reading one of these books. And he's like, Hey, how would you like to play the real game mm-hmm. his older brother was running it was a running an advanced this is starting like a jack tr- uh, chick tract <laughs> <laughs> how'd you like to try to harder stuff kid but uh you know he was like he was running a AD&D first edition wow and, yeah that's where i started AD&D first and wow. my very first module i ever played in was the tomb of wars <laughs> and you stuck Meat with grinder. it and you, you stuck with yes, it and i, I stuck Art. with it i <laughs> This, I never. I don't think we ever finished that. It was a meat grinder. I probably went through ten characters. But this is interesting because this might explain our divergent styles of plays and preferences. Because Peter and I were talking about our first experiences with RPG uh, were asocial because we had no one to play with, so we just we we were attracted to the the kind of the art and the storytelling and the mechanics, but we didn't even play with. So we just you know read the rule books, read the GM's guide, and we started composing campaigns in our head and looking at character sheets and stuff and you know that yeah. led to kind of our style as like more storyteller driven GM style players yeah. but that's cool uh-huh. so you did, did you actually have a first edition did, 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 your, your own personal copy I still have it actually no fucking yes way. I have a first edition player's handbook and I might even have the DMG laying around Descri- describe that that's is, is that that's the is like a red book or it's like a mine box? is 
mine is black with an orange binding. Okay. It's got like right where the perfect binding comes together. Uh, it's orange. Mm-hmm. And I think it was probably the second or third printing. Okay, so, so it wasn't like the. Cause... It wasn't the very, very first one. It was the okay. second or third printing. I actually got it secondhand. So uh, yeah. my mother found it at a garage sale of all things. Really? And yeah, I was probably one of the few people that were spared any kind of familial vengeance against D and D or whatever. Yeah, I mean it's not is it's not as hardcore now. Even with the kind of uh, most people's fury is now directed to Harry Potter. If you've got a religious nut job parent, um, that he's running interference for you. But yeah, I mean back in the day <laughs> in our generation, D and D was like mainstream hated on by religious authority figures. Sure was yeah. Because I got into it in '88, so that was like right past the peak of D and D. Right. D and D hate. Uh, D scrutiny. Didn't um didn't Tom Hanks come out with a movie called Mazes and Monsters? Yes, Mazes and Monsters. I haven't even heard of that. No, Tom yes. Hanks. Tom Hanks, mm-hmm. Mazes and Monsters is supposed to f- dramatize the events of an individual. Uh, I believe it was in Michigan or Wisconsin, some university up there. He supposedly mm-hmm. disappeared into those steam tunnels and killed himself or whatever but it was he had other issues besides D&D well on. most that's every time I hear like you know Marilyn Manson or but, Doom killed somebody I'm thinking no that person's fucked up right Marilyn yeah. Manson and Doom yeah, had have sold millions before. of copies there's not millions of serial killers running around so yeah. but yeah that's that hard uh, that's the whole Patricia pulling uh mad mothers against D&D everything like that yeah it spawned that and then that spawned the movie uh Wow! So was it? They got by with the same name as Mothers Against Drunk Driving. That's sounds Mothers like a shameless act. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. I never heard I'm about that. Pretty sure it's Mad, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, Mothers Against Dungeons and Dragons makes yeah. sense. Um, all right. So that kind of naturally evolves the next question, there, Peter. Yeah. Um, basically, if you were Mike, is it? Do you prefer Michael or Mike? Mike or Michael at works. He makes us call him Michael at work. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have to spend the extra. This is after hours. I'll call Next you Mike. So. Gotta get at the hell. The, so. <laughs> what do you? Um, how would you describe yourself as a as a player versus a GM? I, as I understand, you kind of prefer doing uh, grind fest campaigns. Is that is that both true with you as a player and a participant that way? Um, or is it just when you're on the other side of the table? I wouldn't say I, somehow that has. I think A Rod has uh, blown that out of proportion. I don't think I like grindfest campaigns. Oh really? Uh, I dig you don't the story prefer too. Those? No, I dig the story too. But where I think he's getting that is that I am a self-described min-maxer or character optimization. I, I enjoy character optimization. I'll pour over rule books as a player. I'll pour pour over the rule books, and you know, look at all the options I have for my character and make the best decision based on the concept I have. Uh, but as a GM, as a GM, I'm probably the exact opposite. I don't look at the rules. I I don't stick to a major plot. I'm more of a sandbox style. It's uh, yeah. campaign. Um, I the give players the players kind of freedom play. to do what they want. And, you know, I have a general idea of where I'd like to take the the adventure, 
and, but right. I mostly rely on improvisation, uh, you know, playing off what the players do. So I'm probably it's I'm at polar opposites when it comes to approaching the game from a or GM perspective. That is interesting um, because if you're a min maxer, would you say you're also a bit of a rules lawyer? I mean, they, they, they tend to go hand in hand. They tend to go hand in hand. They do. But I do not call out people if if there's a question at the table. Yeah. Then I'll put my input in, but I don't necessarily call people out midstream and say that's not the way you do it. Right. Right. Uh, I don't necessarily know all the rules either. Right. I just know when it comes to my play when it comes to my player character, I know the rules concerning right. the character in that context. Right. Isn't it oh, weird? Yeah. So, if if you brought that that play style to a GM, okay, so if you played in the campaign you GM'd, what would that experience be like? I don't think it'd be bad. Okay, <laughs> I don't I don't try to overrule the GM. I don't try to uh, usurp authority. Yeah, you, you know, I don't usurp authority or try to be a dick to the other players at the table. I'm just when I create a character, I actually write. I usually write like a multi page background. You know, I'm mm-hmm. talking a thousand, fifteen hundred words. And that's odd for a min maxer oh. because usually they fit the character to uh they they fit the character to the optimizations. And you seem like you at least try to optimize it in a vein that makes sense with your character's backstory. Well maybe I is... make the backstory make sense to the character optimizations. <laughs> Still you ever, with that being said then Mike, would you ever uh, on purpose, design a character that had like a certain character flaw or a certain weakness about them that would also then translate into a non-min-maxed rules uh, character behind the scenes. Like, would you ever develop a character with a disability that would affect the the numbers on the sheet? I've developed characters before with hindrances and disabilities. But they wouldn't hinder. Were they the just topographic, or were they actually substantial as far as the mechanics? I've played a blind and deaf character before, so. Oh really? Yeah, I was yeah. in World of Darkness, World of Darkness game, but. So it was more than just a hindrance that was for flavor. It was actually affecting your stats and things like that. Correct. You said blind and deaf. Yeah. Were they a powerful psychic? Really, a powerful sidekick? Psychic. Uh, yeah. I knew it. They were. <laughs> so they were no hindrance at all. They just allowed you to buff your psychic skills. Was he Daredevil, basically? <laughs> I've never heard of those. No, uh, he was more of a mind reader mm. type deal. So he could tell what everybody was doing around him by reading their thoughts. Uh, okay. Well, I had this right. awesome follow-up question about, you know, because I, I went on at links in the Gaming Ethics cast. Wasn't it Gaming Ethics cast? Yeah, Geek Ethics. Yeah. It said the power mm-hmm. gamers are douchebags. And uh, since you self-described <laughs> as a power gamer, I thought we'd get some steam out of that, but I don't know. It See, there like, you go. Uh, You're confusing. I think a lot of people associate... Set him straight, Mike. Set him straight. All min-maxers are power gamers. Yeah. Now, I will tell you that du- power gamers are douchebags because what a power gamer does is try to make himself look good at the detriment of other players. Like our friend Aschie, for example. The Trandosian Wookiee hunter that played in my party who also, I was a Wookiee. <laughs> I'd say that qualifies. And so to do that, to make themselves look better at the detriment of other players often involves 
character optimization. But you you can have one without the other. So what's the difference again? You're you're saying that power gamers aren't necessary to be a power gamer in your definition. You have to be a douchebag. Yes, yeah, so I mean and you you're have trying to try take the spotlight and... away from other people. Oh, so so you're trying to? It's kind of like the schoolyard bully who tries to elevate himself off of the detriment of his peers. Yes. He's basically trying to put them down to shoot himself up instead of just trying to be the best he can be. He He's also actively trying to tear down the player base. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. Well, even okay. if he's not actively trying, I've observed a lot of power gamers definitely have fun at the expense of the party. Almost to point that they don't well, he care about the other party. About it, yeah, all he's, still he wants doing, the glory right? and the power, and the other parties is there to assist him to get that. Right. You know? now, so. And my approach with those kind of players is I actually just call them out on it and tell them, look, if you would like to continue playing with this group... Mm-hmm. They need to alter your behavior. So I think a, a, a lot of people are like non-confrontational. They don't want to, you know, call a guy out on his bullshit. On his bullshit. But they, yeah, they need to. Yeah. Absolutely. In fact, what I do at the beginning of any campaign I run, I actually have a social contract. I call it the campaign contract charter. Oh, fucking what? Yeah. So I have a campaign charter, uh-huh. and what I do is I lay out. <laughs> uh huh. My expected, you know, how I'm going to run the game, house rules, any house rules that we come across is is at the beginning, if I have any house rules, they're laid down in there, and as, as we come across and make rulings in the game, we actually add them to the charter. And I also hmm. put in my expected, you know, how I expect the players to act at the table. It's almost another meta level, like you got a game of diplomacy right. <laughs> going on simultaneously. With the well, I mean, it, what it does is it lays down all the expectations so that when you call somebody out, they're like, well, this is bullshit. I didn't know this way it was going to be. Yeah. Bullshit. You're like, yeah. Here it is. I had you read it. You even signed the damn It's like chart. a D&D prenup. Right. <laughs> <laughs> do you guys do that before you roll characters? Yes. <clears throat> wow. it's pretty cool. It seems like a good idea, actually. It is a good idea. I think it would have avoided a lot of the infamous blow, you know, mid-campaign blow-ups that derailed so many of my games. I think it's especially useful. I mean, because you're playing with the same group of people. Yeah, they're probably your friends. You know what to, you know what kind of behaviors to expect, anyways. Right. Right. But yeah, especially in a place, you know, in a place where you're going to be playing with strangers, for instance, like at game days at at your local friendly gaming store or at conventions. <laughs> uh, I think it would probably be even more useful. Yeah. So, I mean, at least with your friends, you can tell them, hey, asshole. You know? Right, mm-hmm. right. What's interesting, though, is I've recently been opening my table here at my home to people who I do not personally know and just happen to come across while I'm out and about. And it's actually a good idea if you're going to bring in people who you're not too sure of that, that to make sure that they congeal with the group, that they have a, at least an idea of what you're, what you're going to demand of them. That's a, a really good idea, actually. Yeah, we put, like, scheduling stuff in there and and everything. Kind of all the meta, non, you know, non-character social aspects of the game. So are we definitive, then? Are power power gamers aren't necessarily min-maxers, and a min-maxer is not necessarily a douchebag? Is that the final answer on that question? That's my final. Answer. I would say that all it's like one of these logic puzzles. All power gamers are min maxers, but not all min maxers are power gamers. But all power gamers are douchebags. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I need a Vin fucking diagram to figure that out. Yeah, no kidding. 
All right. Well, Okie dokie. I will go ahead and get on with the next question that maybe isn't going to cause a fight, and that's um, what, in fact, is, Michael, your personal favorite RPG system, and what addition in that system? Uh, hands down, Mutants and Masterminds Second Edition, which is the current, the current edition of that game. It's uh, built off of the D20 system, so it's the 3.0, 3.5 era D&D. Is that covered in an OGO? Yes, it is. It's OGO. an open open gaming license, which we might actually that, that might be a follow up uh, after our structured questions. But anyway, yeah, yes, sure. it's OGL and it's uh, published by Green Ronin. Uh, it's a superheroes classless uh, system. It's pretty. It's pretty elegant. Classless? Can, yeah, it's classless. So you have levels, it's called power levels, that you get to use points to purchase your powers with. So there's no classes. They actually have pre-built packages mm-hmm. that can, the, their classes, they have like the Cape Crusader, mm-hmm. or the Power Armor, or the Gadgeteer. But those are almost character templates. They're not- they, they are templates. They've basically use their rules, the base rules, to build these up that people can quickly apply and create yeah, a character. Like I want to play like Superman or Correct. like Batman. You've got to get to go, but if you want to just go off the rails and do something else. You can, but you're yeah, not hemmed point in by. with taking levels in a particular class and all that. No, it's, it's all point by. How does that work as far as skills and abilities, though? Well, you purchase... You can actually purchase like five skill points at a time mm-hmm. with your power points. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you just... You have max. You actually have uh, limitations based on your power level. So you can only buy up so many ranks in a skill or so many levels of a power. But beyond so that, it's, it's free. To, you know, it's free reign. So you allocate as you wish. There's no rules on allocation. You just, Correct. you know, create it. And it's kind of like some of the like when I translate what you just described over to some of my PC RPG experience. I think a lot of the Bethesda RPGs are very similar. In that they don't necessarily have classes, but they have, you know, skill points, and you can kind of create any kind of, um, any kind of version of a character that you want within these boundaries that they've set, which are pretty open. But why is it your favorite? Because you said it was based. The second edition is based off three point three point oh three point five D and D. What have they done besides just making it classless that makes it your favorite edition? The only thing that they've really kept is the single roll D20 um, D20. conflict resolution mechanic. Uh, And along with. Multi class? Say again? Do you still have to roll versus DC on things? Yes, it's all DC based. Even. You you don't even roll damage anymore. It's it's a DC based toughness save. And you have levels. Yeah, you have levels of. I forget the terminology they use, but you have different levels, so you can be like stunned or bruised or injured. And the default concept is nobody ever dies. So well, once you've reached your limit of toughness, then you're unconscious. You know, because it's, it's all built on golden age comic book style uh, storylines where the you know the good guys don't really kill the bad guys. The Punisher hasn't been invented yet. Correct. <laughs> I mean, you can play the Punisher. You can say that you're not pulling your punch on that last hit or whatever and mm-hmm. kill the guy outright, but it, it, it specifically states in there that by default... The hero's going to pull his punch. So he wants to kill him. And villains, too? Well, what motivation do villain have for not killing you? 
well, you know, villains always like to brag about their exploits, so I imagine the they monologue. capture Yeah, they mount capture the hero's monologue and give the heroes another opportunity to escape. So the GMs are kind of encouraged to not have the unbeatable villain or Right, I mean they're still unbeatable villains, but usually your hero return you know, lives again to save the day right, another right, day. Right. It sounds more user friendly than just straight up D D if everything's Based on one mechanic, that truly seems simplified. Yeah, you only need one die, the d20. Uh, it, cool. it can be kind of complex when you're trying to work out, you know, because when you're, you're presented with the character, you have all these options. That's the problem. You have all these options, and you don't know where to begin. Right. Which is is a problem for new players, which is why they have the templates. So you can just, hey, I'm going to play a Paragon, which is basically a Superman character. So you just pick the template, and if you want to change some things, you remove the stuff, add your points back in, and then spend them. So I, I think it's it's a, it's a pretty versatile system. I think you could even, because the powers are so general, you could you can play fantasy, espionage, or horror games with it as well. <laughs> Have you cool. done a lot of campaigning with it? or I haven't done as much as I'd like. I've yeah. ran one campaign, and yeah. it is my favorite system, but unfortunately I can't get enough players to ever to run a, a continuing campaign in it. So my second favorite would be Pathfinder which is what the rest of my group plays. Is that on the rise? Because I'm seeing those books more and more. I think uh, it is. There, uh, I just recently saw a report by Black Diamond Games that they had a graph, and they're comparing 4E sales to Pathfinder sales, D&D 4E right, versus Pathfinder. Right. And they are actually alternating months at, at some stores as far as being the bestseller. So now explain to us just for because you know we got a lot of listeners that are just casually interested in RPG and not aware of the backroom politics. Give us a couple minute, you know, discussion about what is Pathfinder. Okay, well, about two years ago, Wizards of the Coast, which are the publishers of Dungeons Dragons, mm-hmm. decided to end the three point five edition Dungeons Dragons and create a new edition called Four E. Well, when they did that. They had built basically. They had built the entire industry, an entire industry around the 3.5 D&D because they had released it underneath the Open Gaming License. What the Open Gaming License did was release basically all the core rules, crunch, and mechanics from the DMG, the Dungeon Master's Guide, the Player's Handbook, and the Monster Manual, and release that for use to be used freely by anybody who wanted to publish games underneath the OGL. Uh, obviously, there's limitations as a license, but and you couldn't use pra- like the art, like you the art was the- copyrighted. The names, like the particular Correct. given names of characters and monsters, were used, but you could use all of the game mechanics. Correct, all the game mechanics because game mechanics cannot be copyrighted. They're an algorithm, and therefore you can't copyright them. You could patent them, but D and D was never patented. So once it's yeah, because of patent laws, once it's been out for a year, right. you can no longer place a patent on that. Well, what was the point of the OGL then? The OGL, at the time Wizards was bringing 3.0 onto the scene, uh, the role-playing industry was in a slump. And what they figured is if they released the core rules for other publishers to use, then all these publishers would be supporting their game. And so their game, everybody would have to buy Dungeons & Dragons to to use all the third-party support. You know, basically make their game top dog again. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the mm-hmm. time, at the time, White Wolf's products were selling were 
had actually been selling really well and were starting to slump off. So the entire industry was in a slump, but they figured that sharing that, that core rules would, would basically revive the industry. And it did there for a while. And then he had the D20 glut where everybody was producing D, D20 products. D20 logo on it. With the D20, uh, with the, not, I don't think everybody could put the D20 logo. That was a separate, oh, separate really? license to be uh, able to put the logo on it. was like a trademark. Uh, but what happened was so many people were trying to get in on the action of the D20 boom that a lot of crappy products was put out there, and there's a lot of buyer's remorse after that. People didn't want to, you know, it's like, am I going to be getting a good product, or is it going to be one another one of these crappy products? Same thing with the, like, the, entire, the video game industry went through twice. You know, shitty licensees came up there, diluted the brand, too, much, too much stuff on the market, too hard yeah. to find good quality stuff. Like the so, Nintendo seal of approval, almost. Yeah. Like right. <laughs> and so what I think Wizards did when they went to revise the system for 4th edition was they're mm-hmm. like, well, we don't, we want more control over the IP. Mm-hmm. We don't want that dil- brand dilution. And we want to, they wanted full control over what third-party publishers could create. Now, you can still create products for 4E. But you can't take it out of the license. But it's very restricted. Very restricted. They have a new license called the GSL, which is a gaming system license, I believe. Oh, really? Uh when it first came out, it was so horribly written that there's a huge backlash from the industry. Uh, the major third-party publishers weren't going to get on board. So, uh, you know, it was very restrictive. I, I've actually had an opportunity to produce and publish a supplement under 4E, and I don't think I'll ever do it again. <laughs> wow. So it's just the license is too restrictive for me. Uh, but what Pathfinder has done was when Wizards – the, the company that produces Pathfinder is called Paizo. Paizo mm-hmm. Publishing, for the longest time, had the contract to publish the two D&D magazines, Dungeon and Dragon. And Dungeon was a monthly adventure magazine, and Dragon was more player-oriented feats and, and fiction and, and you know, news, D&D news type stuff. Right. Well, when the... <laughs> When Wizards pulled the plug on 3.5, they also killed the contract for the Dungeon & Dragon magazine. But Paizo had already started a new subscription service for their Adventure Path modules, and that's what Paizo's good for. They write excellent adventures. Hmm. Well, instead of hopping aboard the 4E train, Paizo basically said, to hell with it, we're going to stick with OGL, we're just going to revise the entire system, which is Pathfinder. So most people think of Pathfinder as D&D 3.75. They opened up their beta testing for Pathfinder RPG for free. Everybody could download the entire core rulebook for free and beta test it. Of course, it's not the same as the finished product, but (laughs) they released this this entire rulebook for free along with, they've they've also done that with, with their new book that they're releasing at Gen Con, the advanced player's handbook. So they're very, I think they're very connected with their, with their fans, which is something the Hasbro backed corporate entity of wizards of the coast has, I think failed on in the recent years. They've, they've lost that connection to their fan base while Paizo has been building their connection to the fan base. And that's why you see Pathfinder on the rise. And I think is, is almost, if not as successful as for 4E. 
be interesting to see their presence at Gen Con this year because last year Pathfinder made a huge splash. Right, because they released the core rulebook. But didn't have maybe as big a footprint because Wizards, in addition to their booth, they also had the uh, Role Player Game Association. They still have their thumb on, so they had that huge haul for that. Not necessarily, not necessarily Wizards or D and D fan, but you know they're 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 people trying to play RPG. So it'd be interesting to see what kind of footprint Pathfinder has this year. Yeah, the RPGA and the DCI owned the Sagamore Ballroom at at Gen Con, but right beneath the Sagamore Ballroom in a much smaller hall was the Pathfinder. A dungeon, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) A dungeon. It was the Pathfinder Society, which is Paizo's Uh organized organized play arm. So, and I think they're expanding this year. They've, cool. they've, they've even opened up volunteer positions for regional coordinators. Wow. Is, is there any RPG system, flip, flipping this around, is there any RPG, RPG system or mechanics that you particularly hate? I don't think there's any system I hate. Uh, there's definitely systems that are more complicated to understand. Um, I, don't, I don't like, as far as mechanics, I don't like random character generation. That's not my thing. I think if I'm going to play a game, there's you know I don't want to just be. I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. Leave it to chance or fate. What kind of character I'm going to play? I mean, there's a reason I'm playing the game. I want to play this type of character. Yeah, right. I want to play Billy Badass. Right. Uh, you know, Fighter Extreme or the you know a wizard or whatever. So I don't like random character generation. And I don't like overly simplistic rules. Like uh, I, you probably won't catch me playing a role playing game that. You solve everything on paper, rock, scissors. Uh, mm-hmm. so, well, speaking of simplicity and difficulty, I, I remember last Gen Con, I actually sat in one of your panels, uh, Mike, and you were discussing a little bit about Pathfinder, the open uh, gaming license, and GSL and things like this. And I raised my hand. I remember asking you a question of, you know, as a new DM, which would you suggest I get into if I was going to either start like a Pathfinder game or a 4E game? If I'm new to, to DMing, you actually suggested 4th edition. Cause it I actually was, did. It was easier to get into. Yeah, it is easier. We adopted that. That's the, that's, uh, that's the gaming group that I'm running now has been running a 4E campaign ever since that suggestion, um, which it seems to be a lot more user-friendly. Now, do you see that as a as a as a bonus because it draws new people into the hobby? Oh or? yes, I, you know I'm not knocking 4E and anything. It's a solid game. Uh, I've had fun play. I still play it occasionally, mm-hmm. um, and it has definitely. I think it's eased the burden of the game master. No longer is the game master have to. You have before you'd have to create all these custom stat blocks if you wanted to create your own worlds. Uh, mm-hmm. What what 4E has done is made making monsters. They've streamlined that process. It's easier to run them. Yeah, and I think it is definitely is definitely a positive thing for to have these easy easier to learn rules to get to entice newer players to get into the game. Because I know most player, you know, most people who have no experience playing role playing games, if they're interested, they might take a look at the rules and realize the amount of time is going to require. <laughs> you know, the investment. Indeed. You have a lot of investment. Right. You have to read that rule book. Um, and with 4E, I think it makes it easier for players to get in. In fact, I think here soon there's going to be an even easier version of 4th edition, and it's called D&D Essentials. Basically, if you remember that old school red box, red box set from the basic set, 
from original D&D, they're re-releasing a red box set with oh. simplified rules. And I think you'll, uh, if they're smart, they'll actually market those in like the board game section at Toys yeah. R Us or Walmart. I mean, if they could get in Walmart with that, I think that would open up, you know, it, it, it would gain a lot of exposure for the game. So yeah. Yeah. I've enjoyed it. I mean, it, taking, you know, who I was as a person a year ago and my time commitments already, I think your suggestion was a sound one uh, last year's Gen Con, Michael, because I picked up all the core products of 4th edition after that uh, panel and found it very easy and user-friendly uh, to, to go ahead and, you know, create something really quick that you can present to a new batch of players and have them have a good time and go home uh, looking forward to the next session. And oh, definitely. It's, yeah, it's I been pretty successful ever I'm, since. Then. I'm glad you uh, listened to my suggestion. So, Yeah, definitely not bogged down in, you know, months of research before I was actually playing the game. Right. All right, well, this is a question I'm definitely going to enjoy asking Michael. Um because we cover this a lot with our show, um, and that's what's your favorite um, gaming moment that you've ever had? Um, I'm talking number one, overall, it rises to the top of your consciousness when you think about it. What's the best moment you personally have had in your gaming history? That is a really tough <laughs> question. Probably tough, but I'm sure you can isolate a few experiences pretty quickly. I think the best experience I've ever had gaming was at a Gen Con two years ago, so it had been Gen Con 2008. And after having gone to several Gen Cons and not having such a great time, our group finally nailed what you need what needed to happen. We <laughs> oh, pre-registered good. we pre-registered for every slot of the RPGA. So we had all our gaming events, tickets in hand, and all we had to do was show up, get seated and play. And so it was just like twelve hours of playing every day straight. We had, didn't have to start with lines. Didn't have didn't to, have to there, F with lines. Look through the brochure. That's to see right. Which Everything was pre-registered. We got it in the mail. We didn't even have to stand in line except for to get our bag, the goodie bag, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> went to the ta- we went to the section, got seated. We're all together, mm-hmm. and you know it, we started at eight o'clock in the morning and ended at midnight, and you had like four hours of break in there between That's you know awesome. between each, each slot. We even did a special, one of the special modules where it lasts until almost 4 o'clock in the morning on Saturday. And then we came back and played a slot on Sunday and then had the evening or the afternoon until the exhibit hall closed to, to peruse the exhibit hall. But I think we went to the exhibit hall twice that whole time. That was probably the number one gaming experience I've had because we did so much gaming, had so much fun in such a small amount of time. It was insane. I think that's what I actually expected out of Gen Con with my first visit last year, but it was like most of the time I spent not gaming at all because of the disorganization. I just went there and was kind of, you know, bouncing from room to room and and not really knowing or being comfortable with, you know, how to actually, because the the tagline, of course, is best four days in gaming, but for me it was like best four days in wandering. Or waiting. the, the, (laughs) the, The trick is, is to... Pre-register, find all the events because when GenCon, you know GenCon.com, they release uh, the event schedule. Find the games you want to play, register for them suckers, and then be done with it. Uh, you know, I you know I like I like some seminars too, but mostly it's about the gaming. If I think what turns, I've got a couple a couple of friends that don't like GenCon, and I know why because that first year we went there, the first year was in Indy. Uh huh. 
we went there and all we did was walk around the goddamn convention or the exhibit hall for, you know, 10 hours. You, know, you, I, you can get through everything in four hours, see everything you need to see in four hours. I mean, yeah, the, the, the exhibit hall is not anything big deal and anything you miss, you can catch on the internet. You know what I mean? Right, right. So yeah. the exhibit hall is just for people with a lot of money to blow. That's all the exhibit hall is there for. Or if you want to check out the booth babes. So, <laughs> of course, that's on some my of my theories that you have to any of these big cons, you almost have to take a few levels in convention going before you have the experience to, you know, right. yeah, enjoy it. And I then mean, I, we're going to touch on that a little bit later in the cast, how we can extract the most and get some more insights on it. But that's that's good, solid advice. Yeah. Um, you've got a lot of uh attention for some of your online gaming projects and we talk about it uh, from time to time at work and out of work uh, tell me about your online projects like mad brew labs never met press how they started uh, how they've evolved and grown and uh, what's going on with them now Let's start with mad brew labs okay well mad brew labs madbrewlabs.com is my <laughs> is my role-playing game blog uh basically i started that on a whim because I was looking for something to fill some free time, and I like writing. Writing's always come natural to me. So I said, well, what the hell, I'll start a blog, and then, well, you know, what kind of topic am I going to blog about? I didn't want to just blog about everyday life, because, one, I don't want everybody fucking knowing that, and two, no one's going <laughs> to give a damn. So I was like, well, I'm pretty passionate about role-playing games, so I'll start a role-playing game blog. And so I... Yeah, it started slow at first. I I didn't know exactly what I was where I was going with it, the direction. And then I joined a newly formed network called the RPGBN, which is the role play role playing bloggers network. And I you can reach that at RPGbloggers.com if anybody feels like going out there and checking it out. But what it was, it was a loose association of fellow role playing game bloggers and it the site itself serves as an aggregate for your feeds off of a blog. And so it pastes the excerpt, not the full text, so it would force people to go to your blog and you actually, you know, develop traffic that way. And it actually exploded in about a year and we had uh gee, I think we had a couple hundred members at one point in time. I, I don't keep track of the of of all the specifics today. But it that I think that joining that network allowed me to meet other bloggers and soon I was doing collaborations with with other bloggers, which led me to another online project I have called NeverMetPress.com. And what NeverMetPress was, it grew out of a collaboration between myself, uh, a blogger who does TheCoreMechanic.com, which is his name's Jonathan Jacobs, and Quinn Murphy from AtWill.net. Uh, and we did some skill challenges for D&D 4th Edition. And if anybody's familiar, not familiar with D&D 4th Edition, a skill challenge is basically structured role play. So instead of doing combat, you're doing, you got to get so many successful skill challenges completed in order to uh, get past that section of, of the game. And we did it about war, and we guest blogged on the core mechanic, and then we produced a small ebook. And then while, during our brainstorming sessions, we're like, you know what would be awesome is if we did this uh, crowdsourcing publisher. Basically, just a couple guys get together, and you invite everybody who wants to participate to come in and produce content for your core idea. Basically, you come up with a core idea, a core concept, and then you release that and allow everybody to develop for it. And then you get the best of it, edit it, 
put it together and then publish a you know a gaming product. And that is what Never Met, Never Met Press is about, is is that crowdsourcing. And we've actually gathered a solid group of individuals that are consistent contributors to our stuff. Um, unfortunately, uh, I will not be a co-owner of that project for much longer as I'm handing over the reins to my partner, Jonathan Jacobs, from The Core Mechanic. Uh, just <clears throat> managing a business and some stuff that's going on with my home life. I just don't have a lot of time left, so i got to clear up space somehow, and that's, that's, that's the thing that's going to break. But uh, they're doing a lot of good stuff over there, and we have a Pathfinder conversion of our first product that I wrote called The Desire, uh, which is a villain, uh, a villain-based book where we give DMs a villain and a bunch of plot points to basically insert into the campaign at any point in time. Uh, and so we're doing a Pathfinder conversion of that, which I'm going to finish up, and then hopefully we've got a Mutants and Masterminds uh, campaign setting that we're wanting to develop too. Sweet. So it's been a, it's, it's an amicable split with Never Met Press. Yes, yeah. There's no hard feelings at all. It's just I don't have enough time. I'm sad that I got to leave it, but you know I got to have my priorities. You think you're going to be part of the crowdsourcing still? I am still going to be a content career? developer, so I'm still going to be there working with Jonathan Jacobs and the rest of the crew. Where do you think you're like taking Mad Brew Labs? Is that I mean I've noticed that you know I've been reading it since the beginning, and you were a little bit more ranty and uh, chaotic there at the beginning. In fact, my, I think my favorite piece of all time. I went back for the first RPG to read some excerpts of it, and you'd and it actually delisted it. It was gone. Yeah, it was gone. There's a beautiful rant about the local LARPing scene. Yeah. Uh, and World of Darkness campaigns and all the, the hat fuckery that goes on in those circles. Yeah, I've gotten away from rants. I think ranting about stuff... I, the negativity doesn't do the hobby any good. Mm. So, I... And while that rant, that LARP piece, was actually, you know, half of it was tongue-in-cheek. Well, right. It was the best rants. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was, <clears throat> I might republish it at some point in the future. But, uh, yeah, you know, I, I got away from those rants, and I'm more about just doing the positive stuff. I'm not going to, you know, I do some product reviews, and I'm taking a page out of a fellow blogger. His name's Baron, Kis- Baron Kinsman. He does UncleBear.com. He's like the first ever role-playing game blogger. He's been around since the early 90s or the mid-90s. His blog has. You know, started out as a website and then evolved into a blog. He sounds like a relative of Pedo Bear. I don't know. <laughs> well, he's, in, uh, he's based out of New Mexico now. But he's basically got a, a rule where he, does, he, no longer, he doesn't do any negative reviews. If he doesn't like your product, then he just doesn't review it. Hmm. So, and you know, Not that way, constructive criticism. I mean, he, if, so if he I think if there's really something be, worth, yeah. if there's something worth saying about it, then he'll say it. Okay. But overall, there's just, you know, I'm not, he's not going to bash on a game product, even right. if it's shitty. Right. Right. So it's just not worth, to... it's not worth your time. You know, it's not worth your time. Might as well put your, you know, focus your energy into something worthwhile. Yeah. I, I personally love rants. <laughs> When it comes to so it's, it's our stock and trade. Uh, yeah. I'm getting nervous. I'm yeah. sitting over here, like you know, tugging the car, going, "Hey, hey, hey, okay, uh, no negativity." The way, that, the way that I like rants is when they're approached. Like, um, I'm one of this person comes to my name, Spoonie. It's called the Spoonie Experiment, and he rates like old, you know, FMV games that were on, you know, PC in the '90s. And he his way of ragging on something is. 
kind of an exploration of what might have been with a product that didn't necessarily live up to expectation. And it's kind of also filled with a lot of dark humor. It's kind of like the difference between a positive comedy and a dark comedy. I kind of tend towards the darkness. And I I kind of like I like rants that are well thought out. If people are just being stupid and they're ragging on something they don't really have a passion for, then I don't like it. But if they have a passion for whatever they're disrespecting, then... You know, I know they're not trying to destroy something. They're actually trying to refine something. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think there's there's definitely a place for, you know, negative, uh, not even negative, but, you know, hardcore criticism of products. You know, especially as somebody who's wanting to purchase something and you're like, wow, that looks cool, but what is everybody saying on it? Well, if there's nothing, if no one's giving the truth out there, then you'll never know until you buy it and then it's fucking too late. Right. So yeah. I just personally, I just find that, you know, that kind of stuff just drains me of, of energy that I'd rather be putting someplace else. Plus, yeah. you know, the, this industry is a little bit more fragile. It's not like the red letter media guy eviscerating George Lucas, you know? I mean, he's, <laughs> he is just completely fucking taking down in the awesomest way as possible the Star Wars prequels. But George Lucas made a billion dollars on him. He's not fucking. Right. His, you know, it's like these, like some of these indie developers and stuff that you tend to maybe be the targets of the ripping. You know, they're just people loving the product and trying to get it out there. Maybe they made a misstep, but you know, it's it's different. It's like when you're murdering somebody's baby in the crib, it's 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 <laughs> it's harder to be ranty than it is when you're talking about multi-million dollar. You know, billion oh, I, dollar could, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I think the target of these kinds of deconstructing rants should be the biggest of the big in whatever field you're you're discussing like the <laughs> biggest most monolithic aspect of your hobby is the hobby is the element of your hobby that deserves the rant let's roll on peter let's see uh in brief can you tell us a little bit about your any nomination for last year cuz i before this interview hadn't really heard what an any was okay well just a background on the innies themselves and any is an award handed out by a site called in world en world and mm-hmm. en world is a huge probably one of the largest role-playing game forums out there you, uh, you have en world and you have the rpg site and you have rpg net right and en world probably has the largest or i you know don't quote me on this but it has I think it has the largest user base. And for, geez, since, I, I can't remember when the first any award ceremony was, but the innies themselves are probably the most recognized award ceremony in the industry next to the Origin Awards, uh, which is handed out at the Origins Game Fair in Columbus, Ohio. So you know, grabbing an, an, an any nomination... I think it was it surprised me because I was in the same category as obsidianportal.com which is an online campaign wiki and they have a ton of users a ton of users and I was also in the same category with coboldquarterly.com which is a magazine um you know they're an actual print publication magazine so I was in there with a bunch of big dogs and I am surprised that you know I was nominated for best website. Uh, I didn't take home any awards 
the gold award went to Obsidian Portal and the silver went to Cobalt Quarterly. But the fact that I was actually nominated, you know, my little madbrewlabs.com was nominated and, you know, to be put amongst those deal. peers was pretty big, was pretty big to me. So. It's a cliche. It's an honor to be nominated. It is an honor to be nominated. I mean, once you're nominated with the Innies, it, you know, past that, it's a public vote. And so it's all, you know, basically a popularity contest or what right. people know. Right. So if people don't know you, then they're just, they're going to vote for what they, what they already know. Sure, sure. So, but yeah, I think the nomination is probably the biggest thing. Did you get more attention in the industry from it? I think so. I think maybe not the industry, but the online community. Hmm. Uh, get more eyeballs? Right. Definitely got more eyeballs. When I got nominated, I had a ton of traffic coming from the Indies website. Sweet. All right. I definitely cool. got some more eyeballs on. And I think most of the blogging community probably knows who I am. And some of I know some of the industry has because I've actually worked with some of the industry. So... You know, that's pretty cool, especially, you know, going to the ceremony itself. Then you get a hobnob with with all those people that are making the books that, I, you know, that I play. So what's the next big thing um, in tabletop role playing game, in your opinion, Mike? Oh, the next big thing. I don't know. Is it the Microsoft table? Surface? <laughs> surface? If, surface? if they didn't the cost $10,000, I'd say that would be awesome. But uh, right. probably on the same kind of on the same level, same same type of technology, the tablets, uh, RPG. You know, I don't, I don't know if it's the next big thing, but there's definitely going to be a lot more opportunity to create touch interface applications that work with your tabletop role playing game for use on stuff with tablets, uh, hmm. like the iPad. Obviously, right. the iPad is definitely the 800 pound gorilla in that market. But I think you know, this time next year, you're going to see a lot of tablets on the market. They're going to be a lot cheaper, and you know, as they become more, uh, as the adoption rate on tablets become greater, you're going to see a lot more tools to be able to use at your table with those type of things. As far as the next big thing, and there'll in, be apps for that. There'll be apps for that. As far as the next big thing in in role playing games, I don't know because if you look at it, it's paid, it's stayed pretty consistent since the late seventies. D and D's always been the big dog. Uh, there's yeah. always been, you know, somebody nipping at its heels, but you know, no, no one's ever ever taken that. So uh, I, I can't tell you that. I think it's pretty much status quo for for what's the next big thing, D and D fifth edition, I guess. Do you think this trend towards stream streamlining and wowification will continue in five? Uh, see, I, I've never took on that wowification. You know, <laughs> wow simulates D and D. You know, yeah, well, yeah. Wow is a D and D on on the computer, and so if <laughs> if if D and D's taking notes from Wow, it's really taking notes from itself, isn't it? It's a circular. It's its own tail. It's a circular behavior there. Um, yeah, I don't yeah. have a problem with you know the gamey video game as- aspects. I I love war games, which is war games is where D and D came from initially. Yeah, so it's like a know, full circle almost. Right. It doesn't. That kind of stuff doesn't bother me. What do you think the worst thing or the biggest threat to the industry is? Uh, the biggest threat to the industry is time. People don't have it. It requires yeah. time to play these games. Yes, but fortunately, there's always a current new generation of teenagers in college. There, college students is. being born at this moment. But you know what we've developed in the society is like an instant gratification. Everybody wants shit now. Ah, immediate, yeah. immediate, instant gratification. 
And uh, while I love playing role-playing games, I think that the amount of investment is doesn't really play to to the next generation's you know their needs. That's a good point because it's like even among the geek crowd, RPGing is seeing being seeing as more and more hardcore. Right. Like, I think we'll always there always be role-playing games, and there'll always be role-playing gamers. But we're it's going to be really hard to see that percentage grow instead of shrink. So it's going to be think, more ish. Do you think, Mike, that some of the simplification is or wowification, as Aaron was saying, that you see, like in, for example, fourth edition D and D, where classes are well defined. You've got a tank, you've got a healer, you've got a DPS, you've got a controller. You know, it, it, is that simplification the industry's way of trying to target the instant gratification age that we live in to try well, and think, say, hey, it's not going to take that much time to get to the good to get to the good stuff? Right. Is well, I think I, I think when the developers are creating 4E, I think they definitely were aware of the amount of money that WoW draws in and therefore providing similar mechanics, recognizable mechanics, that those type of players, you know, would see and and be attracted to was definitely a point. But I don't think that playing off WoW or the WoWification, video gameization of D&D or role-playing games is the way publishers need to tap into that instant gratification. What I think is that they need to think outside the box. You know, everybody, when you think of role-playing games, you think of fantasy, right? Swords and sorcery, hack and slash type stuff. Yeah, yeah. But I think what they need to start doing is, you know, have, if take a page from the social media games, like from Facebook, all that Zynga crap that people spend hours doing, <laughs> um, which I personally don't like, but I see that that, crap is making billions of dollars and they yeah. need to open up their they need to open up the genre the genres of role playing games and how we think about role playing games i think maybe if someone made a princess role playing game where you get to be a princess and ride freaking ponies ooh, and ooh, rain- sign rainbows up. that is so fucking cool <laughs> i mean seriously yeah, no, I you know what i mean you you grab that female element and because right. it's a younger, it's you know, it's gonna the younger demographics gonna be attracted to that. You hook them in at the beginning, and then you can introduce them progressively to more complicated type games. So, I think the key is, is I mean, they're definitely. I don't like simple, simple, simple games, but I think they definitely need to simplify, make the the buy in for learning a game very small. You need to basically transition from a board game to the role playing game and have some in between stuff there. And, you know, maybe you don't call them role-playing games at all, but they're, you know, make gateway drugs to this stuff. I think that is the answer for, for growing the industry. Not that I think it needs to grow. Now, let me I, ask have, you. I have a group, so I'm completely happy. <laughs> if it dies off, I'll still be able to play what I'm playing. But, right. you know. With that happening, do you, it seems like you're almost suggesting this despite yourself because it seems like the direction that you're proposing here doesn't necessarily match your personal tastes. Um, so with this technological kind of merging with RPG elements, do you think that's going to ultimately enhance your favorite hobby or just encroach upon it? Well, you're right. I, it is definitely the stuff I'm proposing is stuff that I wouldn't be interested in. Um, right. But they got you. They already got well, that, you. But yeah, well, they're right. They're not, 
the industry needs to stop targeting the people that are already fucking role playing gamers because they're going to play no matter what. Right. Uh, They've already they're already playing something. So if you want to grow the industry, which is kind of funny because that's it's a topic on Mad Brew Labs this month. I'm running this. It's called an RPG carnival where all the blogs chime in on on this topic, growing the industry. So, but if the industry wants to grow, wants to be able to make a lot of money, which I don't think they're doing right now, is they're definitely going to have to open that up. And it, of course, the current the current batch of role playing gamers are not going to be interested in it. But that's not the people you want. And as far as technology, I, you know, I, I see on you know, does technology enroach or enhance the hobby? I think it can do both. Uh, technology can be used for great and terrible things. Um, his stereotype's always the GM that's got a laptop, and he's, uh, well, you know he's what playing is, the laptop, and he's not playing. He's not doing the campaign. What it is, I not think, it, the people, yeah. the the tools can aid your game. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about that. They can help in bookkeeping and everything else, but they can also be a distraction. So it, you're probably walking a tightrope here and you just need to learn how to use the technology. You know, I think virtual tabletops are fucking amazing. It allows people from remote regions of wherever to connect and play a game because somebody's got to stay at home and watch the sick kid. They can be on their computer and join your game via Skype and, and you know, like a software platform like Map Tools. Uh, yeah. I think that stuff is, man, that's pretty freaking wicked. But, you know, you also have the shithead player who's busy texting his fucking girlfriend and he's constantly on his goddamn iPhone. You just want to shove it up his ass. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there's definitely, you know, you got to you got to be responsible with technology. Yeah. So right. I don't think having a laptop at a table kills kills the the atmosphere unless the guy using it doesn't know how to apply it. Yeah, so whether he's using it as that. a tool or a crutch right. or a distraction. Right. It's how you, yeah, I, I totally agree. Cause I've used a, my laptop before with my 4E games. And what I did was I set it on a small table to my right. And I had my Dungeon Master screen in front of me and then the players beyond that. So that when I needed the laptop for something to solve, you know, an interaction, all I was doing was just, just briefly turning my attention to the right just for a few seconds and then back where it belonged with the players. So it wasn't it wasn't dominating the scene. It was just kind of, as you said, a tool to to help. Of course, you know, my dream setup would be have like a digital game table. Like you have a dining room table that is actually a touch screen like the Microsoft Office, except for larger. And yeah, pretty you know, what would be awesome is have all the crunch and rules programmed into the son of a bitch so you don't have to worry about looking up the rules. It does that yeah. it does that type of stuff for you. I think uh, that and, would be amazing. You know, it uh what it does, it abstracts all those rules and allows you to get to the cool stuff, which is a story, right? So, right. Yeah. I think it's coming because, I mean, like, look at this plasma. I got a 50-inch plasma. You know, seven years ago, it was $10,000. I bought it this Christmas for seven ninety nine. I mean, those technologies that seem like they're out of, out of touch are going to continue to get cheaper, you know, and be more and more. So I can see, you know, five years from now, maybe we'll have something like the Surface on legs that you just have for your gaming Embed in your Sultan. <laughs> yeah, the Sultan gaming table. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It'll be a $20,000 setup. <laughs> <laughs> but it'll be all you need. It would be awesome. All the kids are doing it. Well, we've got Gen Con coming up. Depending on when we get this cast out, it's going to be you know a week or two away. Uh, what's your history at Gen Con? 
Well, I never, I've always wanted to go, but never got the opportunity to go to the Gen Con until its first year in Indianapolis, which, of course, is right down the road for me. So I've gone to every Gen Con but one during during its run here in Indianapolis. How long has it been in Indianapolis? I yeah. want to say 2001. Wow. That is what I... It's coming up on this yeah. next year. Be the 2001, year. and I skipped 2003 because I happened to be in Evansville that year, and it was a big trip for me. Yeah. So I didn't, I wasn't able to make it. But, uh, but yeah, since 2001 has been here, and they just renewed their contract, so it's going to be here for quite a while, really? which I'm happy about. I know there's a bunch of old school bumpkins that, you know, Want if back it's in. not in Lake Geneva, yeah. then it's not Gen Con. Well, fuck you. No kidding. What so, the fuck is there? I always read those online debates, and they don't, I mean, are you other than me? the fact what that they're, in, they're bummed out that it's not in their backyard I mean, anymore. It would be funny. You know, it'd be fine if TSR existed and still resided in Lake Geneva, and, you know, the right. convention was right down the road from the people who owned it, but... Right. Now, you know, the people who make D&D do not own Gen Con. It's a separate right. entity. So, and Indiana, you know. And God Indiana help us is the fucking wizards ran Gen Con. <laughs> Indiana is the crossroads of America. They have a so state, I think, awesome uh, convention center. It's only going to get better in the oh, next yeah, year. Oh, yeah, they're expanding that. Really, I, I, I wish PAX would come because the Washington Convention Center and especially the place that they had it in Boston, uh, the name escapes me. Is Daniel Hall? Anyway, um, they don't hold a candle to the Indiana Convention Center for size. Hell yeah, but what about the city? Uh, the C- Boston, Seattle, yeah, Seattle. Seattle but but you know, I didn't get to see any. I mean, I'm, I yeah, guess I'm most there. of the time you're probably inside. Exactly. And you're, yeah, you're there for the con, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, and, and I, I don't care, but it, like, there's 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 better facilities in like Dallas. I mean, there's like you need to find big, massive convention centers because Gen Con comfortably holds a hundred thousand people. I did not feel like anything but perhaps the expo hall at the height of Saturday was yeah. crowded. The so, exhibit hall can get crowded, but other than that, I think yeah, I think you're right. It definitely has uh, an optimal amount of space. It's not too big. It's not too small. So you know, Indianapolis, Indianapolis is not a total shithole. No, you can get a I decent place to eat, decent brew pub. Hey, hit, hit hit Broad Ripple if you want. The to Ram. I'm telling you what. Yeah. You Gen Con tips. We were talking about we're getting the Gen Con tips. One pre-register for your fucking events, but it's too late for that now. So if oh, hopefully you'll listen, really shit. You, you'll listen to this next year and you'll pre-register. So so now you're gonna have to wait in line. And get reminding myself like to re-listen to this next year so, right now. Yeah, because <laughs> everything, all the good stuff is sold out. So you have to buy general tickets and then roll the dice to see if you get into a slot. God damn it! I yeah. thought, thought we still have time. No, you guys. We haven't learned our lesson, man. Yeah, on me. It snuck up on me this year. That's what we did last year. We waited, and then it was too late to pre-register, and then we all screwed ourselves. And yeah, we didn't have such a great time. But, well, let's uh, go ahead. I mean, since you're giving advice, just skip to the question we wanted to ask you, which was, you know, what's what what are what are all the pieces of first time, you know, attendee advice you would give to everybody yeah. who's not maybe been to Gen. When Thomas? you wake up in the fucking morning, take a shower. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> take Amen a shower. Forever and ever. Amen. Thank <laughs> God. Number you one. Know, I think, you know, that's a it's a. Take- Horrible stereotype, but unfortunately, is very valid when you go to these conventions. And Especially all it takes is one guy in a hundred, yeah, to to to, to wreck stink your up the place. Yeah, and so, these these this is a twenty four hour convention center, right? This it Gen is a twenty four hour, and people so the funk doesn't ever go right. away. People are sleeping on the benches, <laughs> so I know they're not taking yeah. showers, right? 
Um, but yeah, yep. no, take a shower. That's my first tip. Second tip is I think downtown, eating downtown is very expensive. Or not very, but it's more expensive than what I'm used to. Yeah. So I, my group, we actually pack a cooler. And so we bring our lunch. And guess what? Because we don't have to go anywhere to eat and stand in line forever. If you've ever tried to go to the McDonald's at the, uh-huh. I think it's the Hyatt or whatever, the Subway. Holy right. crap. Right. You want to talk right. about crowded and waiting. Right. So, no. This way we just break out the sandwiches or whatever we brought with us, the drinks. It's on ice. It's cool. We eat right there. We're done. And, you know, sometimes we'll keep it in the car because we, we, we usually get good parking, so we park close. So it takes five minutes to walk through the skywalk. Go back there, grab our drinks, our meal, whatever. And so that's my second tip. Gotcha. Bring your own food. And then my third tip is if you're not going to pack your launcher, that, that's not an option for you. The yeah. Ram. The Ram Brewery. It's a block away from the convention center. You can take a skywalk to the elevator and it comes down right in front of it. They are Why? very, very gamer friendly. Every year, uh, I don't know if, you, if you've heard of the company, but it's called Privateer Press. They put out, it's called Full Metal Miniatures, uh, a war game called War Machine and Hordes. Mm-hmm. So it's like steampunk badassery. I, I love the game. I actually have a miniatures army, Crick's miniatures army. So, um, <laughs> But every year, these guys deck their their restaurant and gaming paraphernalia. They got banners and the they changed their menu. Like uh, the menu is all privateer press stuff. Like last year they had a big monster apocalypse uh game and so everything was like monster apocalypse menu the menu was was themed in monster apocalypse. They sell t shirts. Um last year they had a twenty fifth anniversary Dritz Doerden growler Beer growler that oh, you could uh, buy? Yeah, I've got it. It's a, it was a limited edition thing. Sweet. So what is they're a growler. A, a growler is like a big jug of that you put your booze in, man. It's like a stein, it's right? A stein? Well, it's, not a, it's not a stein, it has a screw on lid. Oh, okay. Was it? So it's like you the, you know, the, the XXX jug from, you know, uh-huh. comics, right? Uh-huh. So cool. And it was Dritz Doerden based? That's yeah. cool. It had some. It had a logo from Wizards of the Coast that had Dritz Doerden on it. it. Says twenty-five years of Dritz. So that awesome. was yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I've also heard that because one of my friends' uh, girlfriends works there, and they the waitresses and waiters fight each other to work Gen Con weekend. I bet because they, they rake it in Gen Con. I'm sure most gamers tip nice for Cute even women, decent looking yeah. chicks. So yeah. <laughs> I know uh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean they 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 roll they they roll definitely uh, well in their charisma checks. Um, what are you looking forward to seeing this year? I think I, what I'm really looking forward to see is I mentioned my favorite system was Mutants and Masterminds from Green Ronin. Well, this year they're actually coming out with a third edition, mm. and at Gen Con you'll get to see a preview of the engine, the the same the same system. But it's called DC, I think DC Adventures or DC Universe. And so they've got a Parking license. Back to my early days at the role-playing game, the Batman role-playing system. <laughs> they've got a license from DC, and they've created a DC Universe-based role-playing game on the new Mutants and Masterminds 3rd Edition. And they are going to have like the hero book and the villain book at Gen Con. So wow. that's definitely something I'm looking forward to. Uh, I'm always – I'm a big terrain fan. I don't have – 
a lot of it, but I wish I had more. It's just really expensive. But Gaming Train, um, I'm always interested in going by this booth called Dwarven Forge. Oh, yeah. They have the hand-painted terrain. It makes me salivate every time I go by there. So amazing. Yeah, this year I think I'm actually going to purchase a set. Their prices have actually like slashed in half. This you know, year. I don't think I think it's very reasonable. I just and, never and had. I, and know? I think that I think maybe they it found someone who made it because maybe. like their hundred their two hundred dollar sets are like eight a hundred dollars now, and they're like used to be hundred twenty dollar sets or like something like eighty to sixty. Yeah. I was shocked when I got yeah. on the show. Yeah. You know, individual piece set by piece. Because if you can't afford the entire set, you can buy. You know, little pieces that can augment your tabletop environment. You know, and maybe base one of your main villains on. You know, have them set on a four by four dwarven forge piece, and not necessarily have the entire setup. Yeah, just to spruce it up. Oh, and uh, the new advanced players guide from Pathfinder. Mm. So I'm looking forward to that too. What was the event that you said that Tracy Hickman throws every year? It's called Killer Breakfast, and it's sold out. Uh, every year, right? It's sold out every year. And But, hey, if you want to get in on it, uh-huh. uh, my alma mater, uh-huh. IUPUI, has got a deal with Tracy Hickman. They did it last year. Uh-huh. They're doing it this year. <laughs> IUPUI campus is just a few blocks northwest of the convention center. Uh, you go straight up West Street, and it's off of Michigan. And in their, in that first building there, the uh, informatics building, tr- I believe Tracy Hickman is going to be hosting a killer dinner. And so they, huh. he's doing a killer dinner there, and I think, I, I don't know how you get the tickets, but I imagine if you go to IAPOI.com or something mm-hmm. um, and, and look that up underneath the Gen Con stuff. Or they have a Facebook page, so Gen Con Extravaganza. What's, what's the concept behind the killer breakfast and dinner? It sounded hilarious. Okay. Yeah, it is. It's pretty hilarious. What happens is is that – And you, everyone knows Tracy Hickman is. He's, uh, Tracy Hickman a is a longtime collaborator with Margaret Weiss, mini fantasy series. Dragonlance. Dragonlance. Um, Dragonlance. I like their Deathgate cycle. That's my personal favorite of theirs. Uh, fantasy author. He is a fantasy author, and him and his wife mm-hmm. also wrote the first Ravenloft uh, I module. I nine yeah. Ravenloft, which is my that. favorite module of all time. Uh, Tracy and Laura Hickman, his wife, they wrote isn't that. This one is Vlad. Isn't well, it? there was a sci-fi. Strahd, Strahd, Strahd von Zerovich is is the villain. In Ravenloft, and he's a vampire count that's been basically his whole entire realm has been sucked in to this evil demi demi plane of dread. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, one of the first modules with sci fi elements was Keep on the Borderlands because they had lasers and shit. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. I thought that uh, that was actually had- it was before. I think that was before Ravenloft. I, I just know them from Dragonlance, that series. Oh, yeah. The Dragonlance yeah. Chronicles, and right, yeah. which is the, the big uh, novel in that series. I had no idea he did. he was behind Ravenloft. I just listened to a, a D&D podcast, because they uh, re- pre-released that as premium content. They re-released I-9 under the uh, 4E rules. I'm not sure if it was a pay-for product or if it was one of their premium things you had to sign up for their Insider for. Oh, yeah. But they were D&D they, Insider. They were talking about the uh, DAP. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, I had no idea that he made it. So you have any uh, up-and-coming projects that you've been working on that uh, you'd like to share with us? Uh, well, I've mentioned some of the stuff I was working on with Nevermet Press, and there's also a geo-social location-based site a web application that I've been working on for gaming events mm-hmm. and hobby stores. 
uh, I don't want to release the name because it's actually I have it live up right now, but it's not ready to be hammered by people. So, but what it is is uh, if you're familiar with Foursquare, mm-hmm. which is a location-based um, social network, which you know is kind of a mini game. You collect points and stuff for checking into places. Well, it's going to be Foursquare for hobby events, conventions, and gaming stores. So you'll be able to check in, find places, schedule stuff, uh, RSVP to events. It's it's in the works. It's about 75% of the way there, I think. So I hope to actually have it done by Gen Con, but we'll see. Okay. Well, as no one is ready for primetime, we'll uh, post a link to our forums on it. Cool. Yep. Well, appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for the first time Gen Con advice and uh, talking about the industry. Um, that'll about do it. That'll that'll man. What was that? <laughs> I went like more uh, uh, Italian American than redneck. Hey, okay. you're just role playing. Yeah, that about do it. Just do it. That about do it for uh, this episode. Yeah, thanks, of, Mike. Of, that was Beyond. awesome. Hey, not a problem. If you have a lot of usable parts on this. So. <laughs> parts, parts. <laughs> if you have any questions uh, for us or Michael, um, you can go to our website at baldmove.com. Dot com. Or madbrewlabs.com if you have any questions for Michael. Dot com. Uh, you know, we got the, you can uh, pr- uh, communicate. Jesus Christ. Fuck. I need Jim here <laughs> to do this. Get the cock out of, of your mouth. I know. It's, it's, it's uh, <laughs> All right, I think I got it. You guys uh, have been drinking beers, haven't you? Yeah, yeah been... just just uh, one. Yeah. It's not an excuse. Hey, this episode's me. been sponsored by Magic Hat. That's right, <laughs> Magic Hat. Not if you quite don't pale, want children, nine. <laughs> strap it on. Magic Hat number nine. Um, flaming Sorting Hat is what it uh, kind of sort of felt like. Um, so uh, yeah, if you want to have any questions, comments, uh, you'd like to get on our forums, like to send us an email, go to baldmove.com. and. Uh, for that, uh, thank you for listening. And uh, Jesus, uh, without Jim doing this, I'm just like a. F- I, I know his flow pretty well. Who Why don't are you we- do it? Take it away, Peter. Help me, rescue me. You're my only hope, Peter Street Kenobi. <laughs> I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. <laughs> um, I want to go ahead and plug. Uh, you want me to plug Mad Brew also, Michael? Yeah, yeah. MadBrewLabs.com. He's, pl- he's, he's, he's been plugging at the whole cast, but yeah, let's do a final plug. I, I thought I did that discreetly. No, you did. You did. No, <laughs> you actually, stick, I think you get you credit around the credit where credit's due. <clears throat> okay, well, that's about going to do it for this week's edition of Blue Yonder. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, just give us a comment on our forums at www.baldmove.com. Or if you're interested in what we've been talking about this episode and would like to check up on some of Michael's projects, just go over to www.madbrewlabs.com. And I think that's about it. Uh, For Blue Yonder, I am Peter Street. And I'm Aaron Hubbard. Ciao. (laughs) 